This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's my enormous pleasure to welcome Ala Alaswani to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to this event in the series Redrawing uh, the Middle East. An internationally acclaimed novelist, a courageous and compelling journalist, a bold activist for freedom of expression, and a committed dentist, he is the author of three. <laughs> he is the author of three novels and a short story collection. His first novel, The Jacobian Building, has sold over a million copies worldwide, and he's also the author of Chicago, a short story collection, Friendly Fire, and the book we're going to discuss today, The Automobile Club of Egypt. He's written widely as a journalist in Egypt and in the West and is regarded as an essential thinker and influencer in his region and beyond. The Jacobian Building, along with the film which it inspired, has been credited with contributing to the revolutionary sentiment that ignited uh, the revolution that began in Tahrir Square. He combines this life of an activist with his writing, saying modestly, literature does not change the situation. For democracy, you must engage in direct political action but it changes the reader, teaches us to be less judgmental. The Lebanese writer Elias Khoury wrote of him, Allah Aswani reinvented the Egyptian novel, which had died. It's an honour to have him here today, reading and talking with us about his third novel, The Automobile Club of Egypt. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Now, um, he's had a very... Uh, long and painful journey to get here, has had to travel overnight, 10 hour delay, and has only just made it to be here. <laughs> yes. Thank you, thank you. Uh, it's testament to his resilience and commitment uh, to you as an audience and to his, uh, to his role as a writer. What, what he's asked me to do is just to do a very short reading, just to give you, those of you who have not read this book, a little flavour of the novel. And then what we're going to do is start a conversation and then we'll take it out to you for questions. So I'll begin. So this is chapter four. Alku, the name itself is a pharyngeal groan sounded through tightly pursed lips. In Nubian, it means a leader or important person. But at the club, it took on mythical dimensions. It called to mind some great and legendary winged beast, the subject of fantastic tales passed down over generations, until one day the monster suddenly takes flesh and casts its toxic shadow over everything. Alku was just such a creation. His full name was Kazim Mohammed Kazim, and he was Sudanese Nubian in his 60s. When not speaking Nubian, he spoke heavily accented Arabic, mixing up the masculine and feminine suffixes. He could converse fluently in French and Italian, but could barely write them. Alku had two jobs, those of servant and master. He'd first been taken on as the king's valet, and as part of his duties as master of the wardrobe, he dressed and undressed the king. Alku was the palace's head chamberlain and the most senior servant, and he enjoyed the confidence of his majesty. His relationship with his majesty greatly overstepped the boundaries of his position. Alku was present at his majesty's birth, and he held him in his own hands when the king was just a suckling and observed with sincere joy his first crawl, his first tottering steps and his first words. When his majesty was a child, Alku accompanied him on hunting and bicycle trips and horseback riding lessons. He was the only one who knew whether his majesty was feigning illness in order to skip torturous lessons with his strict teachers. It was Alku who purloined desserts from the palace kitchen and smuggled them into his majesty's suite when his English, English governess had imposed a harsh dietary regimen upon the boy to make him lose weight. It was also Alku who, with complete discretion, organised his majesty's first trysts with beautiful women of the upper class, this to relieve all the adolescent fervour that was affecting his concentration and state of mind. When his majesty went off to school in England, he insisted upon taking Alku with him, though it was less than two years later that, following his father's sudden death, the king returned to accede to the throne of Egypt. At that point, Alku gained unprecedented and overwhelming influence at the palace. All royal correspondence, however confidential or important, was opened personally by Alku. 
who would read it aloud to his majesty every morning as the latter lay naked in his hot bubble bath with Ileana, the Greek pedicurist, taking care of his feet, shaving him and trimming his moustache and eyebrows. His majesty would listen and offer a word or two of comment at most, we agree or later and so forth. Sometimes, if his majesty was worried or anxious, he would flip over in the bathtub and his enormous body would create a huge wave like that of a great fish. Then he would wag his finger and say, Kasim Alku, you'd better behave yourself. During such periods, Alku would answer the urgent correspondence as he saw fit. He would write instructions in French, not without grammatical errors. Alku thus was the true great gateway to the king and much closer to his majesty than any other individuals of the court or the palace administration. A story had been passed down that serves a perfect example. When Dabag Pasha, the Prime Minister of Egypt, wanted an audience with His Majesty, Alku asked him about the purpose. The Prime Minister's face flushed with rage. He found it highly impertinent that he, an Oxford graduate, should have to provide an explanation to a servant. In a delicately sneering patrician tone, he told Alku, who has the right to question the Prime Minister of Egypt when he requests an audience with the king? The next day, the king summoned the prime minister and deliberately kept him standing. The king gestured towards Alku and said, I hope that you understand, Pasha, that this man represents us. Treating him with respect is the equivalent of treating us with respect. The prime minister lowered his head deeply and uttered some words of apology. Thus, the supreme status of Alku in the palace was confirmed and ministers and politicians all continued to curry his favour despite deep resentment that they struggled to hide. For them, Alku was no more than a black servant, a simple valley, ignorant and vulgar riffraff. But they, carefully, they were careful to keep on his good side due to his endless ability both to create mischief and to be useful. Alku at will could cause anyone to gain or lose the king's favour. He held the keys to the king's personality and could read his state of mind at any moment. Moreover, Alku had enormous life experience as well as a sharp, instinctive brain that enabled him to see right through people at one glance. One might go so far as to say that his manner of presenting facts and personages to his majesty should be taught in diplomacy courses. He had only to look at the king to know whether his thinking was going to be clear or muddled and Alku would appropriately choose to present or withhold matters from him accordingly. Alku could carry out his majesty's orders for days without conferring with him and at other times he knew by experience that he should ask the king for his opinion. In making his report to the king about a particular person, for example, he never spoke in a straightforward manner, but discreetly dropped a fact here and there and repeated certain other people's views in such a way that the king always ended up reaching a decision that Alku desired. Alku pract uh, practised all these skills with the ease and self-assurance of a talented soccer player, kicking the ball at the goal from an angle he had practised a thousand times and scoring. His role overseeing the king was one side of Alku's duties and he had another no less important job. He also oversaw all the servants in all the royal palaces. Second only to God Almighty, he was the sole controller of their lives, their earnings and their fates. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, that was a pleasure. <laughs> thank you very much. To have such wonderful words oh, to read. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to begin by um, talking about um, um, your previous uh, novel, The Jacobian Building, being set in a building in the more recent past. But this novel, The Automobile Club, is another iconic building um, in the more distant past, in the 1950s. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the, the social situation and the, the politics of the era and why you've chosen this time and this building. Well, I, I, uh, I don't think I, I do choose. I feel like writing something because... You know, writing a novel is uh, an organic procedure, and it belongs to life much more than belonging to the theory. Accordingly, what is really important in writing fiction is not definable. You, you, you can. It's writing a novel is like falling in love. You fall in love with somebody and you, you could explain, you could give reasons, but you know that the most important reason is not definable. You cannot explain. Uh, accordingly, uh, I had years ago my projects uh, of my novels, the Automobile Club was, was one of them, and I put them in, in files on the computer and I put details 
uh, in every file. And at some point, you feel like uh, there is a click. You're going to write this novel. And uh, the automobile club, well, to me, was a kind of challenge because uh, I believe that the real challenge of literature is to keep the message, the human message, uh, even when we change the context, even when we change the time, we change the place, we still have a human message. Because as you said, uh, the real mission or message or mission of literature is to teach us that we could be different in color, we could be different in religion, in culture, but we are basically human beings. And the Greek literature teaches us not to judge other people, but to try to understand them. Accordingly, uh, th that's exactly what I tried to do uh, by writing. I write a novel which happens in the 40s, but still I'm very happy because, well, I'm, I'm translated to 36 languages. Uh, accordingly, I have all the time, I'm very much interested to uh, the feedback by the readers and the critics. And I was really very delighted and happy because most or all the critics said that despite the fact that this novel happens during the 40s, but all the questions of the Arab Spring, of the relation between the Arabs and the West, uh, of the, the idea of the dictator, all these ideas, uh, the questions raised now in Egypt, uh, exist in the novel. Mm. What, what does working, though, within this kind of microcosm, you obviously enjoy what you're able to do um, so creatively and structurally, um, the idea of taking a space, very different spaces in the case of both those novels, and playing with it, and the, the kind of a limited cast of characters, but which yet reach out. Can you say a little bit about... The most important yeah. thing is to, to be able to, to create a, a living uh, uh, character. And this is the most important part of the job because I believe that anybody could write novels. Mm. I mean, technically, it's not... You could learn that. But what makes really a novel, a good novel, is that you, you are able, as a writer, to make a living character. And I think of my characters, I try to invent them, and then at some point... They do exist. Mm. And when they do exist, I feel it. Of course, they, they will, they will uh, keep uh, invisible to me, but I know that they are around, and uh, I, I, I follow what they are doing. And at some point, I really lose control mm. on the characters. They, they decide what they want to do. Sometimes they do very good things, and sometimes they do terrible things, and you cannot... Uh, you cannot prevent them from doing that. And, uh, for example, in, uh, I'm not going to talk about the end of this novel because... No, don't. Many, yes, don't but, uh, <laughs> but uh, with the Jacobian building, if you remember that there was an old man who fell in love with, with a young lady and they both, they were, uh, they were arrested and humiliated by the police, and Egyptian police, mm -hmm. and... Uh, I, uh, and when they were released, he told the lady that we must forget what happened. And then she said, I have been always an unlucky person. That was the end of the chapter. I write very early in the morning. And uh, I kept, I felt very bad for her because she said that. Because she has been really unlucky. And I kept thinking of her all the day. And then the next day, I opened the laptop and I realized that uh, overnight they, they got married. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I was happy for them, and I remember I got out of my office, uh, and my, uh, my, my wife was doing some coffee for me, and I was smiling. <laughs> and she said, what happened? Uh, I said they got married. Oh. Uh, just to give an example yeah. that, uh, you know, I don't control them anymore. No. Yeah. 
But um, that may be disingenuous a little because you don't just create characters, you create entire societies or interconnections between those characters as well. Um, that's, a, that's a complex business, the weaving of those stories you together. Don't have, you, thank you very much, but you don't do this intentionally. You, I believe that everything exists in everything. Yeah. So it exists know? beforehand. They're, they're yes, fates. I mean, yeah. you, you have always if, uh, a deeper interpretation, even, even for the things that look for, uh, to us very superficial, you know. And this is part of what you just said. I mean, there is a category called the place as the main character. And pr most probably it was established by, by Honoré de Balzac in France and Charles Dickens, most probably. The idea is that any place we are using for our daily purpose is full of human history. Mm -hmm. you, you, this, place, this wonderful place uh, in which we, we are doing this event, this discussion, you could, you could easily imagine that this place uh, is full of human history. You, you could imagine that uh, a love story began in this place. Some people decided to, to change their lives or some people decided to, to get divorced or to commit suicide or to anything. Accordingly, it is uh, the job of the novelist to, to invent or to discover the human uh, the human history of the place. Yeah. Um, before we move on to actually having a wee look at some of these characters, including Alku, who we've just heard about, who I'm sure you're all intrigued by, um, your your own father actually worked in the in the automobile club. Yes, yes. So there's he, a kind of personal absolutely co connection there, and was also a kind of um, intellectual and an activist as well. As that that yeah. that was exactly what I want to say. Is is that my you feel you know there is a uh, there is a, there is a beautiful uh, saying a sentence by Isabella Yandy because she said uh, a short story uh, falls on my head like an apple uh, but a novel uh, I should write every day to discover the novel and then keep writing to produce it. Accordingly, the assumption in this sentence is that we do not invent novels, we discover novels. We have the novels in our hearts and our minds. Yes. Accordingly, this is a, to me, this is an example because my father was a writer, a known writer in Egypt, and he was a lawyer, and he was a lawyer of the automobile club in the 60s. Accordingly, he used to, to take me with him when I was a kid uh, while he was working, I was hanging around the automobile club during the day. There was nobody, and except the servants. All the servants by that time used to work with the ex-king, the last king. So, they, they of course, they, they adored the king. Uh, and they, they told me, uh, as a kid, very beautiful stories about the king. And I saw everything, all the details of the royal place. Accordingly, I believe I kept this in my mind, in my heart for years, and then at some point I, I have written this down. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, we, we've heard a little bit about Alku, um, and you use him to, to, I mean, the whole novel explores the idea of, of leadership and obviously touching on dictatorship as well. Um, but having heard um, an extract from Luke, can you tell us a little bit about his significance and his dominance as well? Because he's such an important um, character in the book. I didn't have this in mind while I was writing, but after finishing the novel, I do like, you know, like any reader or critic would do, I, I reread the novel and try to understand what, what is the significance, mm. as you say. So I believe that the coup is significant because usually when we present the idea of the dictator, uh, we, we take only one aspect, is, is that uh, the dictator is a bad man who is usually corrupt uh, and usually is violating human rights for his people. This is true. 
But there is another aspect. The dictator is a protecting father. And when you live under a dictatorship for decades, you have generations who feel much more comfortable with a protecting father, even if the father is corrupt, mm. even if the father is violent. They, they still believe that the, the protecting father is the order, is the discipline. And interestingly, uh, for example, the BBC made, uh, made a statistic. They asked some people in Portugal about Salazar. Mm, interestingly, 46 uh, of the people of the sample thought that Salazar was a very good leader. And the best, they even said that this is the best ruler of Portugal, you, you could read easily that he was terrible. He killed many people. And, and even in Egypt now, you have people who think that Mubarak was our father. Accordingly, I, I think the coup is presenting this because he is the servant of the king and the king of the servants. Accordingly, you have these two uh, aspects, and I, I would, I, I should say, the base of this idea, the origin of this idea, is a French sociologue called Etienne de La Boissier, and he lived, he he died very uh, at the age of uh, 31 years old, and he made only one little uh, book. Uh, which is very interesting because this book made a real uh, base for an idea in sociology. Uh, the idea I just explained now. And the, the book is called The Discours de la Servitude Volontaire, The Discourse of the Voluntary Servitude. And he said that after decades of dictatorship, you have generations who lose or they have lost their desire for freedom and they got adapted to the idea of dictator and they live with the tyranny with the dictatorship and they made their own projects in life uh, after being adapted to the dictatorship so when a revolution happens with some new conscious when some new generation with people who really have restored their normal desire mm. for freedom, the old generations don't, mm. don't understand the revolution. And for the new conscious people, they have to face not only the dictator, but also the, the generations which were adapted to the dictatorship. Mm. So I found, I did, I fell in love with this idea, with this book. And of course, and interestingly, I read the book after writing the novel and not before. Wow. Yeah, that's why I tell you that I, I don't write yeah. the yeah. novel with any theoretical yeah. motivation. Yeah. But I found this very, very important. Yeah, I understand. I mean, you also play around with this territory as well. There's, there's a point where... I, I, I would like to repeat the name so that if you... Etienne de la Boissier, he was, he was, uh, he was born uh, 1530 and died uh, 1561. Um, you, you play around with these ideas as well. So there's a point where Alku looks like he's softening. He isn't really. Um, and the image of this kindly Alku, you're, yes. you're experimenting in the way that perhaps you might like to see an experiment happen yes. in real life. Um, he becomes kindly and it gives, it gives the servants a, a sense of security and worth, but it's, it's momentary. And I think it says, you know, the, the servile ingratiating smiles disappeared and instead they were polite and friendly smiles, exuding confidence, a sense of responsibility and pride. It's a kind of fantasy, um, but, it, you know, you, you're able to explore it. Absolutely. It? Yeah. And you, you have this. This is very much visible in my country mm. now because you have people who they say, fine, Mubarak was, they say to us, we, we who made the revolution, Mubarak was corrupt. He was violent, he was everything, but we were secure, we were safe. 
we know that he's there. Uh, mm. And uh, of course, this is a whole mm. bunch of nonsense. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> but to me, but I try to understand, you know, yeah. uh, not to judge. Yeah. Yes. And, and do you feel you were exploring uh, your own sense of possibility of change yes. in Egypt through this? Through yes, this novel? absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And you will find the novel, which is, of course, something very interesting and surprising to me, that even in the novel, when the servants made the revolution, and then I read the novel after finishing, as I said, uh, the writing, that I found that there is, what happened is really parallel to what happened in Egypt. Mm -hmm. You know, I, probably I did that in, in the subconscious, but even, the, even the, 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 the number of the revolutionaries uh, compared to the number of the servants, I discovered it is the same number, same. the same proportion. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so because you have forty, you have forty something servants, and the people who made the revolution were about eight or yeah. something, and you have in Egypt ninety million people, and the people who made the revolution were between ten and twenty million. So it's. Yeah, similar proportions. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about one of the other characters in in the book, um, uh, Kamel, um, who feels to me like the kind of complex moral centre of the book. I, I, I may be wrong. And you give him a very complex existence, full full of, of ambiguities. Do you see him as central or just one of the... Yeah, he's very yeah. important because we share many ideas. I We agree, I and he... I Kamel about many things, uh, but but he's different because he's a poet. You know, uh, usually poets uh, do not communicate very well with oh, the no, people. Oh, now be careful! Be careful. Oh, <laughs> yeah, because they, they have we got uh, any in here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you could see this that his reactions are def unpredictable uh, as a real poet, and he's obsessed all the time, but about his poems, what his feelings, and, uh, uh, and I'm a novelist, I'm not a poet, so uh, many things he did, I believe it was not good, uh, mm. because I would Are have never... Are talking about his poetry or his actions? His actions. <laughs> okay. Somet uh, sometimes he's, uh, he's overacting, and sometimes mm. he's, uh, despite the fact that we agree on, on the vision of, uh, uh, of the world, but... I would have never uh, done what he did yeah. because uh, we're different. Yeah. But you explore something interesting. I mean, Kamel in this novel and then a, a, a key character in the Jacobian building, they both being, end up being drawn into or um, indeed compelled into dissidence and, and, and radicalization. Um, obviously, they're very different. One's a nationalist, one is a, a, an Islamist. But you, you treat them both with enormous um, understanding and empathy uh, in these books. Um, you know, I, I don't know how resilient your empathy is towards people acting in this way in real life, but um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, that's, um, um, this is the best thing you could, uh, uh, you could say to a novelist, you know. <laughs> yes, because, you know, the literature is deeper than the soap opera. You know what's a soap opera, right? When the soap operas, you find only two colors, bad people and nice people. And you could tell from the beginning if somebody is from his face, because usually in soap operas, they, the maquillage and everything, when somebody's bad, he's really bad. They make, <laughs> you know, they make him uh, look like a very bad person, aggressive, you know. He's, and a nice person is, you know, very nice all the time. Uh, literature is deeper than that. Literature is trying to, as I said, to explain that we are all human beings and we have the bad. Every, everybody has a bad thing, bad things and good things in his heart. And it depends on the situation. And one of the, I must, I must really talk about this, uh, one of the most important novels, I believe, in history uh, is called The House of Dead by Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Greek Russian uh, novelist. He was uh, 1849, he was arrested and he was sentenced to death 
for political action. He was not really a political activist. He borrowed, he borrowed some books from some communist uh, circle, and then he 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 got arrested and uh, he was sentenced to death. And then he had amnesty uh, by the Tsar, and then after that he spent in Siberia with the criminals four years in prison. Uh, that was terrible for him, but very good for us. <laughs> Why? Because he wrote, he wrote The House of Dead. He wrote this novel about the criminals. All the characters are criminals. And I gave lectures, and I wrote about this novel many times. i just give you an example how the great artist could explain to us what is literature. In one scene of this novel, <coughs> two criminals, one of them is dying. Uh, he was sick and he's dying. And then the other criminal is standing beside his bed and he began to cry. And then the narrator, who is Dostoevsky, asked the criminal who is crying, why you cry? And then he said, he was talking about the dying criminal, he said, he, comma, also, comma, has a mother to cry for him when he dies. And the, the sentence, when you read it, is very strong, very strong. You feel like, and I tried to analyze why it is very strong. And I found also the secret of the power of this sentence is also. And I would say even if I could explain what is literature, probably also in this sentence will explain. Because the idea is he's a bad person, he's a criminal, he committed crimes, he was terrible to everybody, but he is also a human being. And that's exactly what I tried to do by my novels. Mm. Very good, thank you. Can you say a little bit more about your language? I know you're very conscious about your, your use of language. You talk about it being seeming simple, you know, but actually being incredibly complex, how you conceive it and how you make sure that you're, the way you tell your stories... The, the language, way, yeah. the language. Yeah. 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 No, I, 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 uh, I belong to a school in fiction which, uh, you know... Uh, I believe that reading a novel should be a pleasure. Uh, I must tell you that after my years of experience in fiction writing, it is very easy to write a text that nobody understands. <laughs> uh, after the age uh, of uh, 15, anybody could uh, write a novel or a text that nobody understands. And uh, writing about, you know, a story about somebody uh, who got uh, uh, married to a mosquito, all this uh, stuff, and, uh, you know, and they went to the sky, and in the sky they found, you know, uh, a can of Pepsi-Cola and all this. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about texts which were written, you know. <laughs> And it will give you the opportunity as a bad writer uh, to, to talk about with your readers. The readers are very sensitive and usually they, have, they are suspicious about their taste. So when they read this stuff and they find that very good critics are saying that this is a new literature, right? That's, that's how we really, this is the literature of our century. And then the, the poor reader would say, fine, you know, I didn't like it probably because, you know, I'm not used to this kind of writing. I'm probably too old-fashioned, right? Accordingly, I belong to the story, to the, to, to the story writing uh, school of Garcia Marquez, for example, Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, where you should, reading a novel should be a pleasure. Uh, and if the novel is boring, then you're not a good writer. Don't tell me that 
because some writers say that the novel is boring. No, it, I don't care if it's boring or not, because the reader should understand and should keep reading. This is not, no, because it's not, I, I, I studied uh, medicine, and you study anatomy, which is a terrible thing to study, because you have thousands of Latin names for the muscles and nerves and everything. But I had to study that, and it was a real torture. Right? But you have to study that because you have an exam and you have to have to, to, to get graduated. This is not the situation for the reader. The reader doesn't have an exam. <laughs> so if this is a torture, he, he has absolutely the right to throw the novel away. Thank you. Um, before, we're just going to go out to questions in a little moment, but I obviously have to ask you a question about um, women and uh, the women in this novel who are so much better and nicer and more effective than the men, I think. Yes. <laughs> Not only in the, the novel, in life as well. <laughs> um, I, um, there's one point where, um, where one of the characters talks about the fact that you have to be a virgin and of sound mind to get married in Egypt. Was that correct at the time? That's asking well, quite yeah. a lot. <laughs> yes, of course we have, we have hypocrisy in Egypt, of course. Uh, socially, we have hypocrisy because, as I said, everything exists in everything. Accordingly, when you have a real dictatorship, you, you have these phenomena and I call it, and this is a title of my new novel, the novel I'm working on now, uh, As If. You have the phenomena of as if. Everything looks as if it was true, but it's fake, you know. The president has been, for example, since I was a child, I had this, you know, uh, scene on TV many times. Uh, the Minister of Interior is reading the results of the referendum in which the president will be re-elected with 99%. <laughs> and he was congratulate the president, and the president is waiting for the results. <laughs> you know, and it begins here. And then it will go everywhere in the society. You will always, in a dictatorship, there will always be a distance between the image and the reality, between what you see and what happens. So the, the private life of the woman or the man or anything is no exception. Yeah. And you're testing the boundaries of that. You know, there's some pretty explicit passages in this book as well. So it's not, every, just, it's every, not just the dictator, it's society and yes, its norms Yes, in all well. my books. And I, I, I tell you, in Chicago, for example, it was... It was published in episodes in a newspaper, and that's in a very strong newspaper, but not a literary one. So I learned from that because everybody read the novel, including very simple people who never, never bought any novel. And then I made a statistic because there were few sexual scenes. So I made a statistic. I asked it, I studied statistics uh, while I was making my master in America, master of uh, dentistry. So I made what we call a balanced sample, uh, women and men. And the question was, how do you feel about the sexual scenes? Should I keep the sexual scenes uh, in the public published book or not? The result was unbelievable to me that, let's say, out of 20 women, uh, about 19 women said, you should keep the sexual scenes. For the men, you had 16 men who said, no, that was too much. <laughs> Some of these men, I know that they are born addicts, you know, yeah. themselves. They, go, they, 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 they must see pornography every day. But when it comes to the novel, they feel that it was too much. So I kept, I kept asking them. And then the answer was, yes, I could read this sexual scene, but I don't like my daughter or my wife to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So you've been responsible for lots of tensions within households throughout Absolutely. Egypt and uh, the Arab Absolutely. world. Yeah. I am, uh, I am a, a, a chronic troublemaker. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's make some more trouble and take uh, questions out to the audience. So um, have we got the microphone there? Yeah, we've got a question here. Rosemary. Um, thank you so much for a brilliant interview and uh, for making the journey here today. Thank you. Um, my question is about your career as a journalist and a human rights activist. And I was wondering what you felt about the censorship in Egypt now. Well, uh, I'm not, I write for the newspapers, but I'm not a journalist by profession. And of course, any writer is defending the human uh, rights. Uh, and I believe that freedom expression in Egypt now is uh, is worse than any time before. Uh, of course, I'm not able to uh, to publish my articles in Egypt now for two years. Uh, there is no uh, illegal uh, decision to ban my articles, but always they are able to put pressure on the newspapers. I am banned from TV as well, but which is not really uh, to, to talk on TV, to appear on TV, but this is not... You also had gatherings, I think, which were also banned yeah, at one point it's, as well. Uh, yeah. It's like, you know, they try to, to, to ban the gathering, but I, uh, we, we, in the end, uh, because of the revolutionary youth, uh, they always find a place. Uh, so I... Uh, uh, I write a weekly article now in Deutsche Welle, the, the, uh, the site of the German radio, but not in Egypt. So I believe that the freedom of... We never had the freedom, to, to, mm. to be fair, we never had the freedom of expression in Egypt under Mubarak because the freedom of expression is a, uh, is a tool of change. I mean, it's a democratic political term. You have here a freedom of expression. It means that you write something, you accuse a minister of doing something bad, and there will be an investigation. The parliament could, I mean, an action should be taken. What we had under Mubarak was the freedom of talk, is that mm. you, talk, you say whatever you want, and Mr. Mubarak will do whatever he wants. You know? <laughs> We don't have now. Mr. Sisi is doing whatever he wants, but we can no more say whatever we want. Uh, accordingly, it's not. No, I'm not happy about the freedom of speech. And of course, they say you have the government say that you know we are uh, in a real uh, uh, battle against the terrorism, uh, which is true. But I disagree. I, I uh, the the. I believe that the real freedom of expression will help any government against terrorists much more than banning people from writing what they think. Do you, do you think, though, that the, the position of freedom of expression is better under the current regime than it would have been under Morsi, who was overturned? Morsi didn't have the time, but uh, of course he, he was not, they were not democratic at all. But they didn't have the time. If you, if you, if you want, I say that if you want to, to have an application example about the freedom of expression uh, allowed by Islamists, you could see what's happening in Turkey now. The yeah. problem with the political Islam, which is not the Islam, the Islam is a religion like any other religion. Yeah. The political Islam is giving a model for the state. The problem of the religion is that it is emotional and exclusive belief. I mean, you are born Christian or Jewish or Muslim. Accordingly, there is emotion here. You didn't choose. I didn't choose. Nobody did. And it's exclusive because everybody thinks that his religion is the right one and the other people don't have the wrong religion, poor people. Eh? Accordingly, when you apply this mechanism in politics, you become, inevitably, you will become fascist. You will go to fascism even if you don't yeah. realize because you cannot recognize the rights of other people. 
because you see that these other people don't have the right God. Accordingly, they are less than you. And because you have the right God, you have absolutely the right to make the rules. And these rules will never be the same rules for the people who are not. That's why I'm absolutely against the, the idea of the political religion. I believe that the religion should be kept as an individual thing. Everybody has his own religion, or even he, if he doesn't believe, this is his, I mean, this is his choice. But the state should be secular. The state should never have any religion. It was complex, though, because in a way, democratically, government, government then started to dismantle the principles by which it had been elected. So it wasn't uncomplicated. Democratically elected, but not yes, democratic he behavior. Yes, he was democratically elected, and I, I didn't vote for him, of course. But you're talking about the Muslim brother, Morsi. And, uh, but he kept... Uh, I, I defended his... Uh, I said, and I wrote, and, and my articles uh, still... Uh, exists that he has absolutely the right to stay in power for four years. On the 22nd of November two, two, uh, 2012, he made a decree. Through this decree, he cancelled the Egyptian law. He put himself above the law. He said that any law which is against any presidential uh, decision is cancelled automatically. Yeah. Accordingly, you cannot defend no, this kind of uh, presidents. And I went with millions of Egyptians uh, in the streets. All what we were asking for is early presidential elections, not more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another question out there? We've got the microphone. A uh, gentleman at the front, just run round here. Sorry, that was very bossy. Um, <laughs> skip round here. Just note down over here. Oh, oh this lady. For, oh, no. Great. So gentleman in the middle. Back one. Great, thank you. Whether with a touch of, democ of uh, hypocrisy as well, we do in this part of the world, as you know, worship democracy. Do you see any place in the world for a dictatorship system? A dictatorship being yes. allowed? Yeah, but if I, I, I'm not quite sure I, under, I, I understand the question. You, you're talking about even in the West, you have hypocrisy. Even, yeah. Yes, it's 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 a an impure form of democracy. Of course, of course. But but who said that there is? I never said that democracy is paradise. I never said democracy is hundred percent pure. But at least you have, of course, you have democracy like what happened, Mr. Mr. Berlusconi, for example, in Italy is not is not really a very good example of the people's choice, right, to me. But in the end, in the end, you, democracy gives you the tools for correction, which is not the case. We, we, since 1952 in Egypt, we're waiting for who's going to be the president. Who could be a good guy, he could be a bad guy, he could be crazy, he could be, you know, you don't know anything. But with democracy, you could change, you could correct the problems. I always give this example. It's like, you have a car, which is not the best car, but you have a car, the car has problems, you know, problems of electricity, problems, you know, you should go to some mechanical problems, and, but you are able at some point to fix the problems of the car. Our problem in Egypt, we don't have the car. We walk, you know. Accordingly, you cannot convince me because I walk. I dream of having a car. This is just a metaphor. Of course, I have a car for myself. <laughs> yes. I have a, a good Octavia, which is very good. No, but just a metaphor, right? You cannot convince me that keep walking because, you know, I have a car. You tell me, I have a car, but it has problems. No, I'm not going to be convinced. I need a car, and then I will be able to fix any problem in the car. Under any circumstances? Under no. any circumstances? No. 
I think we'll move you on know, to another, another question, if that's okay. Yeah. Is that all right? Just, um, and maybe have a chat afterwards if yes. you want to dig under that. Yes. Um, any other questions out there? Just lady on the front here. I must apologise for my ignorance on this subject. No, no. But is the co-education in schools, are the girls now educated to the same level as the boys? In Egypt? In Egypt. Yes. They, they have the same terrible education as the boys. <laughs> <laughs> No, we have a problem. If, if you, uh, I mean, it's not the idea of girls and boys. If you're not rich in Egypt, you will suffer from the government education, right? So here, uh, the, the, the suffering is for all, for the boys and girls. But, but if you have money, then you could have good education. That was not the case when I was a kid. I was in a French school, uh, but even the kids till the 70s who can, could not afford their parents to send them to uh, French schools or German schools or English schools. Uh, the government schools were, were very good. This is no more uh, happening. Yeah. But it's, it's not... Uh, we, we, we began the, the, the liberation of the woman very early in Egypt. You know? We had the second female pilot in the world was Egyptian, you know. Uh, her name was Lotfiya Nadi, and she came for the first time after the American first female pilot. The second one was Egyptian, and she had her plane from London to Cairo, uh, 1934, and that was, uh, people were dancing in the street. I'm very proud uh, of having the second female pilot. And we had the first uh, uh, woman Arab woman everywhere was Egyptian in the parliament, in the government, and so we we the we this is not our problem, yeah, yeah. but we have other problems. <laughs> Another question out there, um, just lady over here. Oh. Thank you very much. I was very fortunate. I returned to Egypt within almost days of Hosni Mubarak being removed. I saw such vision. I saw such hope. On Friday prayers, I saw Christians stand outside. Yes. And on the Sundays, I saw the Muslims of course. stand outside. Of course. What vision and hope is left now in Egypt? Is it subliminated? How is it expressed? And where is it? Where is the vision and hope? Yeah, I, but we must say a few words about the revolution, because the revolution is not, is not basically a, a political change. You could achieve a political change through a, a political reform, uh, but the revolution is a human change. People, as you just said, become different. People overcome the fear. People are no more scared from the authorities. People are... Uh, very much willing to die for, to, to achieve freedom even for their kids. Uh, so I lived that. I was lucky enough to participate to this revolution. And I tell you that reading the history, uh, the revolution must overcome in the end. But it takes time. Why it takes time? Because the revolution has no tools except the courage and the conscience of millions of people. The counter-revolution has everything, and that's what happened in Egypt. They have, they have everything. They have, they have the police, they have the money, they have the media they have to influence the, the people and to make a kind of character assassination of the revolutionaries, and, the, and this happened in all revolutions. But in the end, the revolution will succeed. Accordingly, uh, I, if you ask me about myself, I'm not, of course, I, I feel very bad for my comrades who are in prison and for the freedom of expression and for many people or the old regime getting back to power and everything. This is personally. But I, I'm very optimistic because I read the history of the revolutions and, for example, the model, which is the French Revolution. After five years, it was absolutely chaotic. Uh, situation, everybody was killing everybody, but in the end, the revolution succeeded. So we shall 
overcome. I think one of your characters, Prince Shamel, says history teaches us that the strongest empires in the world are brought down by the powerless. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, another question out there? Yeah, just there's a lady at the back in the second booth down. Could you briefly talk about your view on Western intervention to counter the Islamic State, ISIL? To what? To counter ISIL. ISIS? ISIS or ISIL. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I, I don't like collective terms, so I, I don't feel comfortable when you say the Arabs or the Muslims or the West. Or, and I believe that in these collective terms, there is a big problem. But to me, the West is not one single thing. The Western governments are something, and the Western people are something different, and the Western intellectuals are something. We have many examples about that. The, the war against Iraq, for example, the manifestations which happened in Europe against the war were more than the manifestations in the Arab world. But the governments decided to go to the war. Accordingly, if you talk about the Western governments, to me, the Western governments never, uh, they talk uh, very, they say very beautiful words about uh, democracy, but they never defended democracy, really. The Western governments, they defended the interests of the multinational corporations. Uh, this is what I think. The people, the Western people are very different, you know, because, and this is very much linked to literature, because the people are the people. Their problem will be a problem of communication or information. But as soon as they will understand the situation, they will support you, of course. We will support... I had an unbelievable support during the Egyptian revolution almost by everybody I know, and I know many people in, in the West. While the Western governments were waiting, you know, to see who's going to win. Yeah? Uh, but from the first day, I had huge support for the revolution. So I, I do trust the people, and I, do, I even forget that they, these people are Westerns. You know, they are human beings like us, and we, we feel the same. And if I succeed at some point to explain to them what, what, what is our cause, they, they will understand and they, they will support us. ISIS is a very good example. Everything done by ISIS has been done in the Saudi Arabia, in the Saudi Arabia for years, but nobody criticized because this is the oil business. You know, so they should keep the Saudis very happy. But the same things done by ISIS, because they have the same book. This is a Wahhabi interpretation of the religion we had in Egypt, the Egyptian interpretation of the religion, which is very, very, that's why we had women everywhere. Very liberal, very liberal. It was done 1899 by a great thinker called Muhammad Abdu, who said, for example, that the burqa, it has nothing to do with the religion, that the woman has the same rights as the man, that the woman should get educated and work, 1899. Yeah? So when we had the first female pilot, that was not, that was, you know, quite normal. With the oil boom beginning from after the war of 1973, there was an oil boom giving the, the, the Gulf countries, the Gulf governments, royal families, uh, unprecedented power. Uh, accordingly, all the Gulf area, uh, countries are a kind of uh, alliance between the royal family and the Wahhabi uh, sheikh, the Wahhabi people. All the mosques, even in Europe, all over Europe, are sponsored by the Wahhabi. And that's why you find Borka here and you find people who become terrorists. But ISIS, which is absolutely, of course, absolutely unhuman, barbaric uh, people who have nothing to do with any religion. But ISIS is not inventing the interpretation. The interpretation has been taught by the Saudi Wahhabi uh, sheikh for years, they, it's like you have, been, you have been taught to be a dentist, right? Uh, and at some point, uh, you make a crown, right? And this is quite normal because you studied dentistry for five years. So what they are doing, these crimes are in the Wahhabi interpretation. But nobody dared before 
to criticize the Saudi uh, policies. Um, I mean, you are much more from a tradition, a, a very, very, very long, thousands, thousands and thousands of years tradition in Egypt of open-mindedness, of multiculturalism. Um, of and that's one of, one of the wonderful things. You say at one point, the best thing about Egypt is its soul. And um, I, I just want to say, and I'm sure everyone agrees, that you're a wonderful expression of that through your work, but also through hearing your voice directly with all of us conversing with us all today. So thank you very much no, uh, for thank being you. here today. Well, and thank you very much. It was really fun. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. You did a very good job. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. If, if, if everyone could just stay seated for a second, we'll walk out and be signing. Um, More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.